Chapter Two of A New England Girlhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elena. A New England Girlhood, outlined from memory, by Lucy Larcom. Chapter Two, Schoolroom and Meeting House. There were only two or three houses between ours and the main street and then our lane came out directly opposite the finest house in town, a three-story edifice of brick, painted white, the Colonel's residence. There was a spacious garden behind it, from which we caught glimpses and perfumes of unknown flowers. Over its high walls hung bows of splendid great yellow sweet apples, which, when they fell on the outside, we children considered as our perquisites. When I first read about the apples of the Hesperides, my idea of them was that they were like the Colonel's pumpkin sweetings. Beyond the garden were wide green fields which reached eastward down to the beach. It was one of those large old estates which used to give to the very heart of our New England coast towns a delightful breeziness and roominess. A coach and pair was one of the appurtenances of this estate, with a coachman on the box, and when he took the family out for an airing we small children thought it was a sort of Cinderella spectacle, prepared expressly for us. It was not, however, quite so interesting as the Boston stagecoach, that rolled regularly every day past the head of our lane into and out of its headquarters, a big, unpainted stable close at hand. This stagecoach, in our minds, meant the city. Twenty miles off, an immeasurable distance to us then. Even our elders did not go there very often. In those early days, towns used to give each other nicknames, like schoolboys. Ours was called Beantown, not because it was especially devoted to the cultivation of this leguminous edible, but probably because it adhered a long time to the puritanic custom of saving Sunday work by baking beans on Saturday evening, leaving them in the oven overnight. After a while, as families left off heating their ovens, the bean pots were taken by the village baker on Saturday afternoon, who returned them to each house early on Sunday morning with the pan of brown bread that went with them. The jingling of the baker's bells made the matter a public one. The towns through which our stagecoach passed sometimes called it the bean pot, the gen who drove it was something of a wag. Once, coming through Charleston, while waiting in the street for a resident passenger, he was hailed by another resident, who thought him obstructing the passage, with the shout, "'Hello there! Get your old bean-pot out of the way!' "'I will, when I've got my pork in,' was the ready reply. What the sobriquet of Charleston was need not be explained. We had a good opportunity to watch both coaches, as my father's shop was just at the head of the lane, and we went to school upstairs in the same building. After he left off going to sea, before my birth, my father took a store for the sale of what used to be called West India goods, and various other domestic commodities. The school was kept by a neighbor whom everybody called on Hannah. It took in all the little ones about us, no matter how young they were, provided they could walk and talk, and were considered capable of learning their letters. A ladder-like flight of stairs on the outside of the house led up to the schoolroom, and another flight, also outside, took us down into a bit of a garden, where grew tansy and spearmint and southern wood and wormwood, and, among other old-fashioned flowers, an abundance of many-tinted four o'clocks, whose regular afternoon opening just at the close of school was a daily wonder to us babies. From the schoolroom window we could watch the slow hands of the town clock, and get a peep at what was going on in the street, although there was seldom anybody inside except the colonel's gardener or coachman going into or out of the driveway directly opposite. It was a very still street. The front windows of the houses were generally closed, 
and a few military-looking Lombardy poplars stood like sentinels on guard before them. Another shop, a very small one, joined my father's, where three shoemakers, all of the same name, the name our lane went by, sat at their benches and plied their waxed ends. One of them, an elderly man, tall and erect, used to come out regularly every day and stand for a long time at the corner, motionless as a post, with his nose and chin pointing skyward, usually to the northeast. I watched his face with wonder, for it was said that Uncle John was weather-wise, and knew all the secrets of the heavens. Aunt Hannah's schoolroom and our shop are a blended memory to me. As I was only a baby when I began to go to school, I was often sent downstairs for a half-hour's recreation not permitted to the older ones. I think I looked upon both school and shop entirely as places of entertainment for little children. The front shop window was especially interesting to us children, for there were in it a few glass jars containing sticks of striped barley candy and red and white peppermint drops, and that delectable achievement of the ancient confectioner's art, the Salem Gibraltar. One of my first recollections of my father is connected with that window. He had taken me into the shop with him after dinner. I was perhaps two years old, and I was playing beside him on the counter when one of his old sea comrades came in, whom we knew as Captain Cross. The captain tried to make friends with me, and, to seal the bond, asked my father to take down from its place of exhibition a strip of red peppermints dropped on white paper, in a style that I particularly admired, which he twisted around my neck, saying, "'Now I've bought you. Now you are my girl. Come, go home with me.' His words sounded as if he meant them. I took it in all earnest and ran, scared and screaming to my father, dashing down the sugar-plums I wanted so much, and refusing even to bestow a glance upon my amused purchaser. My father pacified me by taking me on his shoulders and carrying me pick-a-back up and down the shop, and I clung to him in the happy consciousness that I belonged to him, and that he would not let anybody else have me, though I did not feel quite easy until Captain Cross disappeared. I suppose that this little incident has always remained in my memory, because it then for the first time became a fact in my consciousness that my father really loved me as I loved him. He was not at all a demonstrative man, and any petting that he gave us children could not fail to make a permanent impression. I think that must have been also the last special attention I received from him, for a little sister appeared soon after, whose coming was announced to me with the accompaniment of certain mysterious hints about my nose being out of joint. I examined that feature carefully in the looking-glass, but could not discover anything usual about it. It was quite beyond me to imagine that our innocent little baby could have anything to do with the possible disfigurement of my face, but she did absorb the fondness of the whole family, myself included, and she became my father's playmate and darling, the very apple of his eye. I used sometimes to wish I were a baby, too, so that he would notice me, but gradually I accepted the situation. Aunt Hannah used her kitchen, or her sitting-room, for a schoolroom, as best suited her convenience. We were delighted observers of her culinary operations and other employments. If a baby's head nodded, a little bed was made for it on a soft comforter in the corner, where it had its nap out undisturbed. But this did not often happen. There were so many interesting things going on that we seldom became sleepy. Aunt Hannah was very kind and motherly, but she kept us in fear of her feral, which indicated to us a possibility of smarting palms. This feral was shaped much like the stick with which she stirred her hasty pudding for dinner. I thought it was the same, 
and I found myself caught in a whirlwind of family laughter by reporting at home that Aunt Hannah punished the scholars with the pudding stick. There was one colored boy in school who did not sit on a bench, like the rest, but on a block of wood that looked like a backlog turned endwise. Aunt Hannah often called him a blockhead, and I supposed it was because he sat on that block. Sometimes, in his absence, a boy was made to sit in his place for punishment, for being a blockhead too, as I imagined. I hoped I should never be put there. Stupid little girls received a different treatment. An occasional rap on the head with the teacher's thimble, accompanied with a half-whispered, impatient ejaculation, which sounded very much like numbskull. I think this was a rare occurrence, however, for she was a good-natured, much-enduring woman. One of our greatest school pleasures was to watch Aunt Hannah spinning on her flax wheel, wetting her thumb and forefinger at her lips to twist the thread, keeping time, meanwhile, to some quaint old tune with her foot upon the treadle. A verse of one of her hymns, which I never heard anybody else sing, resounds in the farthest corner of my memory yet. Whither goest thou, pilgrim stranger, wandering through this lowly vale? Knowest thou not tis full of danger, and will not thy courage fail? Then a little pause, and the refrain of the answer broke in with a change, quick and jubilant, the treadle moving more rapidly also. Now I'm bound for the kingdom, will you go to glory with me? Alleluia, praise the Lord. I began to go to school when I was about two years old, as other children about us did. The mothers of those large families had to resort to some means of keeping their little ones out of mischief, while they attended to their domestic duties. Not much more than that sort of temporary guardianship was expected of the good dame who had us in charge. But I learned my letters in a few days, standing at Aunt Hannah's knee while she pointed them out in the spelling book with a pin, skipping over the A, B, abs, into words of one and two syllables, thence taking a flying leap into the New Testament, in which there is concurrent family testimony that I was reading at the age of two years and a half. Certain it is that a few passages in the Bible, whenever I read them now, do not fail to bring before me a vision of Aunt Hannah's somewhat sternly smiling lips, with her spectacles just above them, far down on her nose, encouraging me to pronounce the hard words. I think she tried to choose for me the least difficult verses, or perhaps those of which she was herself especially fond. Those which I distinctly recall are the Beatitudes, the twenty-third Psalm, parts of the first and fourteenth chapters of the Gospel of St. John, and the thirteenth chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. I like to say over the blesseds, the shortest ones best, about the meek and the pure in heart, and the two in the beginnings, both in Genesis and John. Every child's earliest and proudest scriptural conquest in school was, almost as a matter of course, the first verse in the Bible. But the passage which I learned first, and most delighted to repeat after Aunt Hannah, I think it must have been her favorite too, was, Let not your heart be troubled. In my father's house are many mansions. The voice in the book seemed so tender. Somebody was speaking who had a heart, and who knew that even a little child's heart was sometimes troubled, and it was a voice that called us somewhere, to the father's house, with its many mansions, so sunshiny and so large. It was a beautiful vision that came to me with the words. I could see it best with my eyes shut, a great dim door standing ajar, opening out of rosy morning mists, 
overhung with swaying vines and arching boughs that were full of birds, and from beyond the door, the ripple of running waters, and the sound of many happy voices, and above them all the one voice that was saying, I go, to prepare a place for you. The vision gave me a sense of freedom, fearless and infinite. What was there to be afraid of anywhere? Even we little children could see the open door of our father's house. We were playing around its threshold now, and we need never wander out of sight of it. The feeling was a vague one, but it was like a remembrance. The spacious mansions were not far away. They were my home. I had known them, and should return to them again. This dim half-memory, which perhaps comes to all children, I had felt when younger still, almost before I could walk, sitting on the floor in a square of sunshine made by an open window, the leaf shadows from great boughs outside dancing and wavering around me. I seemed to be talking to them, and they to me in unknown tongues, that left within me an ecstasy yet unforgotten. These shadows had brought a message to me, from an unseen somewhere, which my baby heart was to keep forever. The wonder of that moment often returns. Shadow traceries of bough and leaf still seem to me like the hieroglyphs of a lost language. The stars brought me the same feeling. I remember the surprise they were to me, seen for the first time. One evening, just before I was put to bed, I was taken in somebody's arms, my sister's, I think, outside the door, and lifted up under the dark, still, clear sky, splendid with stars, thicker and nearer earth than they have ever seemed since. All my little being shaped itself into a subdued, delighted, oh, and then the exultant thought flitted through the mind of the reluctant child, as she was carried in. Why, that is the roof of the house I live in. After that I always went to sleep happier, for the feeling that the stars were outside there in the dark, though I could not see them. I did firmly believe that I came from some other country to this. I had a vague notion that we were all here on a journey, that this was not the place where we really belonged. Some of the family have told me that before I could talk plainly, I used to run about humming the sentence, My father and mother shall come unto the land, sometimes varying it with, My brothers and sisters shall come unto the land. Nobody knew where I had caught the words, but I chanted them so constantly that my brother wrote them down, with chalk, on the underside of a table, where they remained for years. My thought about that other land may have been only a baby's dream, but the dream was very real to me. I used to talk in sober earnest about what happened before I was a little girl and came here to live, and it did seem to me as if I remembered. But I was hardy and robust, full of frolicsome health, and very fond of the matter-of-fact world I lived in. My sturdy little feet felt the solid earth beneath them. I grew with the sprouting grass, and enjoyed my life as the buds and birds seemed to enjoy theirs. It was only as if the bud and the bird and the dear warm earth knew, in the same dumb way that I did, that all their joy and sweetness came to them out of the sky. These recollections, that so distinctly belong the baby myself, before she could speak her thoughts, though clear and vivid, are difficult to put into shape, but other grown-up children, in looking back, will doubtless see many a trailing cloud of glory that lighted their unconscious infancy from within and from beyond. I was quite as literal as I was visionary in my mental renderings of the New Testament, read at Aunt Hannah's knee. I was much taken with the sound of words, without any thought of their meaning, a habit not always outgrown with childhood. The sounding brass and tinkling cymbals, for instance, in the Epistle to the Corinthians, seemed to me things to be greatly desired. 
Charity was an abstract idea. I did not know what it meant, but tinkling cymbals one could make music with. I wished I could get hold of them. It never occurred to me that the apostle meant to speak of their melody slightingly. At meeting, where I began to go also at two years of age, I made my own private interpretations of the Bible readings. They were absurd enough, but after getting laughed at a few times at home for making them public, I escaped mortification by forming a habit of great reserve as to my Sabbath-day thoughts. When the minister read, "'Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground?' I thought he meant to say, "'Cucumbereth.' These vegetables grew on the ground, and I had heard that they were not very good for people to eat. I honestly supposed that the New Testament forbade the cultivation of cucumbers. And Galilee, I understood as a mispronunciation of gallery. Going up into Galilee, I interpreted into clattering up the uncarpeted stairs in the meeting-house porch, as the boys did, with their squeaking brogans, looking as restless as imprisoned monkeys after they had got into those conspicuous seats, where they behaved as if they thought nobody could see their pranks. I did not think it could be at all nice to go up into Galilee. I had an Aunt Nancy, an uncle's wife, to whom I was sometimes sent for safekeeping when house-cleaning or anything unusual was going on at home. She was a large-featured woman, with a very deep, masculine voice, and she conducted family worship herself, kneeling at prayer, which was not the orthodox custom. She always began by saying, O oh Lord, thou knowest that we are all groveling worms of the dust. I thought she meant that we all look like wriggling red earthworms, and tried to make out the resemblance in my mind, but could not. I unburdened my difficulty at home, telling the family that Aunt Nancy got down on the floor and said we were all grubbling worms, begging to know whether everybody did sometimes have to crawl about in the dust. A little later, I was much puzzled as to whether I was a Jew or Gentile. The Bible seemed to divide people into these two classes only. The Gentiles were not well spoken of. I did not want to be one of them. The talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the rest, away back to Adam, as if they were our forefathers. There was a time when I thought that Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel were our forefathers, and yet I was very sure that I was not a Jew. When I ventured to ask, I was told that we were all Christians or heathen now. That did not help me, for I thought that only grown-up persons could be Christians, from which it followed that all children must be heathen. Must I think of myself as a heathen, then, until I should be old enough to be a Christian? It was a shocking conclusion, but I could see no other answer to my question, and I felt ashamed to ask again. My self-invented theory about the human race was that Adam and Eve were very tall people, taller than the tallest trees in the Garden of Eden, before they were sent out of it but that they then began to dwindle, that their children had ever since been getting smaller and smaller, and that by and by the inhabitants of the world would be no bigger than babies. I was afraid I should stop growing while I was a child, and I used to stand on the footstool in the pew and try to stretch myself up to my mother's height, to imagine how it would seem to be a woman. I hoped I should be a tall one. I did not wish to be a diminishing specimen of the race, an anxiety which proved to be entirely groundless." The Sabbath mornings in those old times had a peculiar charm. They seemed so much cleaner than other mornings. The roads and the grassy footpaths seemed fresher, and the air itself purer and more wholesome than on weekdays. Saturday afternoon and evening were regarded as part of the Sabbath. We were taught that it was heathenish to call the day Sunday. Work and playthings were laid aside, and everybody, as well as everything, was subjected to a rigid renovation. 
Sabbath morning would not have seemed like itself without a clean house, a clean skin, and tidy and spotless clothing. The Saturday's baking was a great event, the brick oven being heated to receive the flour bread, the flour and Indian, and the rye and Indian bread, the traditional pot of beans, the Indian pudding, and the pies. For no further cooking was to be done until Monday. We smaller girls thought it a great privilege to be allowed to watch the oven till the roof of it should be white-hot, so that the coals could be shoveled out. Then it was so still, both out of doors and within. We were not allowed to walk anywhere except in the yard or garden. I remember wondering whether it was never Sabbath day over the fence, in the next field, whether the field was not a kind of heathen field, since we could only go into it on weekdays. The wild flowers over there were perhaps Gentile blossoms. Only the flowers in the garden were well-behaved Christians. It was Sabbath in the house, and possibly even on the doorstep, but not much further. The town itself was so quiet that it scarcely seemed to breathe. The sound of wheels was seldom heard in the streets on that day. If we heard it, we expected some unusual explanation. I liked to go to meeting, not wholly oblivious to the fact that going there sometimes implied wearing a new bonnet and my best white dress and muslin van dyke, of which adornments, if very new, I vainly supposed the whole congregation to be as admiringly aware as I was myself. But my Sabbath-day enjoyment was not wholly without drawbacks. It was so hard sometimes to stand up through the long prayer, and to sit still through the ninthlies and tenthlies and finalies of the sermon. It was impressed upon me that good children were never restless in meeting, and never laughed or smiled, however their big brothers tempted them with winks or grimaces, and I did want to be good. I was not tall enough to see very far over the top of the pew. I think there were only three persons that came within range of my eyes. One was a dark man with black curly hair brushed down in bangs over his eyebrows, who sat behind a green baize curtain near the outside door, peeping out at me as I thought. I had an impression that he was the tidy man, though that personage had become mythical long before my day. He had a dragonish look, to me, and I tried never to meet his glance. But I did sometimes gaze more earnestly than was polite at a dear, demure little lady who sat in the corner of the pew next ours, her downcast eyes shaded by a green calash, and her hidden right hand gently swaying a long-handled Chinese fan. She was the deacon's wife, and I felt greatly interested in her movements and in the expression of her face, because I thought she represented the people they called saints, who were, as I supposed, about the same as first cousins to the angels. The third figure in sight was the minister. I did not think he ever saw me. He was talking to the older people, usually telling them how wicked they were. He often said to them that there was not one good person among them, but I supposed he accepted himself. He seemed to me so very good that I was very much afraid of him. I was a little afraid of my father, but then he sometimes played with us children, and besides, my father was only a man. I thought the minister belonged to some different order of beings. Up there in the pulpit he seemed to me so far off, oh, a great deal farther off than God did. His distance made my reverence for him take the form of idolatry. The pulpit was his pedestal. If anyone had told me that the minister ever did or thought anything that was wrong, I should have felt as if the foundations of the earth under me were shaken. I wondered if he ever did laugh. Perhaps it was wicked for a minister even to smile. One day, when I was very little, I met the minister in the street, and he, probably recognizing me as the child of one of his parishioners, 
actually bowed to me. His bows were always ministerially profound, and I was so overwhelmed with surprise and awe that I forgot to make the proper response of a curtsy, but ran home as fast as I could to proclaim the wonder. It would not have astonished me any more if one of the tall Lombardy poplars that stood along the sidewalk had laid itself down at my feet. I do not remember anything that the preacher ever said, except some words which I thought sounded well, such as dispensations, decrees, ordinances, covenants, although I attach no meaning to them. He seemed to be trying to explain the Bible by putting it into long words. I did not understand them at all. It was from Aunt Hannah that I received my first real glimpses of the beautiful New Testament revelation. In her unconscious wisdom she chose for me passages and chapters that were like openings into heaven. They contained the great deep truths, which are simple, because they are great. It was not explanations of those grand words that I required, or that anybody requires. In reading them, we are all children together, and need only to be led to the banks of the river of God, which is full of water, that we may look down into its pellucid depths for ourselves. Our minister was not unlike other ministers of the time, and his seeming distance from his congregation was doubtless owing to the deep reverence in which the ministerial office was universally held among our predecessors. My own graven image worship of him was only a childish exaggeration of the general feeling of grown people around me. He seemed to us an inhabitant of a Sabbath-day sphere, while we belonged to the everyday world. I distinctly remember the day of my christening, when I was between three and four years old. My parents did not make a public profession of their faith until after the birth of all their children, eight of whom, I being my father's ninth child and seventh daughter, were baptized at one time. My two half-sisters were then grown-up young women. My mother had told us that the minister would be speaking directly to us, and that we must pay close attention to what he said. I felt that it was an important event, and I wished to do exactly what the minister desired of me. I listened eagerly while he read the chapter and the hymn. The latter was one of my favorites. See Israel's gentle shepherd stands. And the chapter was the third of St. Matthew, containing the story of our Lord's baptism, I could not make out any special message for us, until he came to the words, Whose fan is in his hand. That must be it. I looked anxiously at my sisters, to see if they had brought their fans. It was warm weather, and I had taken a little one of my own to meeting. Believing that I was following a direct instruction, I clasped my fan to my bosom and held it there as we walked up the aisle, and during the ceremony, wondering why the others did not do so too. The baby in my mother's arms, Octavia, the eighth daughter, shocked me by crying a little, but I tried to behave the better on that account. It all seemed very solemn and mysterious to me. I knew from my father's and mother's absorbed manner then, and when we returned from church, that it was something exceedingly important to them, something that they wished us neither to talk about nor to forget. I never did forget it. There remained within me a sweet, haunting feeling of having come near the gentle shepherd of the hymn, who was calling the lambs to his side. The chapter had ended with the echo of a voice from heaven, and with the glimpse of a descending dove, and the water drops on my forehead, were they not from that pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, that made music through those lovely verses in the last chapter of the good book? I am glad that I have always remembered that day of family consecration. As I look back, it seems as if the horizons of heaven and earth met and were blended then, 
and who can tell whether the fragrance of that day's atmosphere may not enter into the freshness of some new childhood in the life which is to come. End of chapter 2 Recording by Elena, Cocoa, Florida